0: Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, um, you're good and gracious and kind and real. Like you are the God of the universe. And you stepped down on this planet to make yourself known, to be with us, to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died. And uh, there's many of us gathered right now who are interested in learning about you. Uh, some of us are fully convinced that you are God's son the sent one, the savior, right? And there's others of us, God, who we've kind of believed that and thought that and then the skepticism kind of cynicism both, God, just kind of rises up in our hearts and just candidly, God, some of us just aren't real sure anymore. We believe, but boy, do we have some unbelief God. and God, there's others um, right you just feel like if you're God, you're an absent God, Jesus, if you're a Savior, uh sure seems like you haven't brought the salvation we're looking for. And so God is, oh man, as we work through uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, uh, the gospel according to Luke today, Jesus would, with that thesis that he tells us in uh, the first few verses of Luke, come true, that we would have certainty of the things that were being taught. So Jesus, you tell us through prophet Isaiah that our thoughts are not your thoughts and our ways are not your ways. And as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are our thoughts and ways from your thoughts and ways. And so God, I just pray, um, as a result of this, that um, you would reveal your thoughts, reveal your ways, and help align our thoughts and ways um, with yours really thankful that that same passage in Isaiah 55 tells us that when the word goes out, God, it never returns void. So God, I'm just clinging to that. Would your word, not not all the necessary commentary or any other stuff, God, but would your word go out and would it uh, land on our hearts in exactly the way that you intend it to? And So God, would you give us supernatural curiosity? Uh, supernatural um, attention span God, here and would you give us a supernatural ability, God, to receive your words and then be doers of these words. And thankful that you gave this to us. Really, really thankful for it. Can't wait to learn more about you and share more about you as a result of this passage from Dr. Luke. And so, thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good to see you all. Um, so if you're the first time with us or haven't been with us a couple of weeks, we started a a new series last week. And by series, we just mean some kind of campaign that we're going to work through that's going to take us a little while. It's kind of like uh, we already preach long sermons and try to cover it all in one week, like a survey and things. It uh, gets a little complicated. And so what we're doing right now is we're just working through the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so that is... By gospel, that word means good news, but when you see the gospel according to Luke, what we're really looking at is the biography of Jesus' life. Um, if you uh, don't know much about the scriptures, you got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament kind of talks about how we got here, uh, talks about the problem, and then whispers and points to. The solution to the problem, which happens to be a a savior named Jesus who is God, steps down on this planet. And then the New Testament begins with those gospels, those biographies, telling us about Jesus' life. And there's four different biographies. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke's the longest. It's actually 1,151 verses, right? So Luke's the longest. And uh, Luke's written by an outsider, not an insider. By that I mean Matthew, Mark, and John all have some Jewish pedigree. So, uh, the, the story of Jesus comes through the line of David, which is a Jewish line from God's chosen people, Israel, from the Old Testament that we learn about. so Matthew, Mark, and John are all written with this understanding of, uh, kind of a, a Jewish outline, right? So, um, pointing to the history of the Old Testament, pointing to the Jewish history and Israel's history. And so Luke is a little different in that it's written by a Gentile, an outsider. But the main reason we're kind of uh, diving into Luke and not the others is because Luke uh, was an investigative journalist. So I shared with you last week that Luke um, was basically... Given a research grant, so crazy, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about, still doing the same kind of methods in terms of research and investigation. And this guy named Theophilus, you can go back last week and pay attention to this, basically hires Luke to go and discover whether the story of Jesus is true. So Luke, uh, tells us in the first four chapters, uh, went and read all the narratives about Jesus' life, right? Like all the narratives. He took, uh, Matthew and Mark would have already been written, so he had read those Gospels. He would have read all the narratives about Jesus's life, so it tells us that. And then he also would have sat down with eyewitnesses. So we believe he would have sat down with Peter, one of the people that walked with Jesus. He would have sat down with Paul, for sure, one of the first century apostles. Maybe even sat down with people like Mary, Jesus's mother, the shepherds that the angels appeared to. And so Luke not only took the narratives and read them and compiled them and put them all together and made a kind of a plan to tell us a story. He also went and had eyewitness accounts. And the third thing that we see that he did is he actually went and captured the oral tradition. So only 5 to 10% of the men 2,000 years ago were able to read and write. So that means the way that most people received information was uh, particularly in the religious world, the church world, is there would have been a local pastor, a local leader, a local curator of the story who would have stood up and shared the story with his people. So he'd have been responsible to make sure the story stayed true to how it actually happened. And so that, uh, Luke says that he went and listened to the oral traditions of the minister. So Luke goes and grabs all the narratives gets all the eyewitness accounts and then all the oral traditions and puts them together in this orderly, even chronological um, fashion to be able to present this thing. And he tells us in verse 4, he writes it to Theophilus, so that Theophilus and us, by the way, could have certainty of the things that were taught. So uh, Luke puts together this whole plan. So think about this. Four verses in, Luke has laid out his uh, prologue, preamble, depending on how you view this um, this literary narrative. Um, so he gives us kind of the introduction of why he's doing it, how he's doing it, what he goes about. And then he's going to start with the story. Now this is a story about Jesus. So think about this. If you're a brilliant doctor turned investigative journalist, so Magnum loop P.I., right? I mean that's kind of what we're looking at here, this Guy who loves science, science and the Bible don't like they don't contradict each other. They're not at war with each other. In fact, I would argue science just continues to help us understand who God is and how He created creation, and uh, helps us be mesmerized by who God is. Right. And so um, this guy Luke is going to compile all the stuff after years in medicine, and he's going to put together what we see as an orderly, is what he says, an orderly or chronological account, and he's going to start the story. So he's got four verses in, he addresses Theophilus, and now he's about to help him. Remember, the goal is to have certainty of the things that have been taught. So where does Luke start? Where would you start, right? If you're going, okay, I'd like for someone to know the story of God, know where Jesus fits in that, know that Jesus is God know that jesus was always the plan know that jesus is our hope know that jesus is actually truth right that's why we're studying this is that jesus tells us and in the, in, uh, the gospel of john captures this that he says he is the way the truth and the life meaning truth is not some feeling we don't have personal truth truth at its base level is a person so if luke is going to try to help us understand and have certainty in who jesus is right we need that right now we need some real certainty where does he start where would you start And what's interesting is um, you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it starts with a genealogy, right? So let's tell the story of Jewish history past. We'll get to a genealogy in Luke chapter 3 sometime in a year from now, whatever it is, right? That's a joke, a few months from now. And then, uh, so Matthew starts there. Mark actually starts um, with the story of John the Baptist, so just this front runner who shows up to go prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, right? So that's where Mark starts. Uh, John actually starts a little bit more ethereally, like uh, really neat though, and he starts with what's called the logos. That's the word of God and kind of the, the theme of life and the purpose of life. So John says, in the beginning was the word or the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. And he starts with the incarnation of Jesus stepping down on this planet. So where does Luke start? right they're all Jewish people with kind of some Jewish foundation trying to connect it to you know Jewish understanding while writing to you know Romans and Greeks and Jews. Luke where does he start? And In order to understand where Luke starts we got to understand kind of where he's coming from. So he's trying to bring in all these Gentiles. Gentiles are those who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. Didn't have understandings about sacrificial law. Didn't understand any of those things. And so where Luke starts is really, really important. And where Luke is going to start is with this, this old couple, this old couple. But before he gets to the old couple, he's going to reference the king of the day. His name is Herod, right? And so what he's going to do is he's going to tell us about this old couple who has a baby named John the Baptist, who is not the Messiah, but the messenger that declares the Messiah. And he's going to point all that out. In order to understand why he points all that out, you got to understand Jewish history and go back hundreds of years. And in order to understand why this story is so important to this first century couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. So in order to do that, you've got to understand kind of the history of what's happened so far. And so if you don't know much about the Old Testament, so Luke is beginning this new passage of Scripture to catch Theophilus up to speed. And in order to understand, you gotta under, in order to understand that, you've got to understand the Old Testament. And so basically, to help you kind of gather that, to prepare ourselves for this, and we're going to read in just a second a passage of Malachi, then we'll be in Luke chapter 1, right? Is You've got to understand that in the beginning, right? it says that God created the heavens and the earth. We're here. We all would agree with that. We know we're here. And I can explain to you why you should probably believe that, understand why God would have decided to do that. That's for a different day. But what we foundationally know is we are here, right? you got a pulse. You have thoughts. You're more than just a bag of chemicals. You have feelings you can love. You can hate. you got all those things, right? You have real experiences, and you are here, and you look around, and there's a lot of other people here, and there's trees and sun and photosynthesis, right? All that's real and true. So, Luke would have known and helped compile this narrative to know that there was an Old Testament where we were here, right? And the Old Testament starts with, we're here. And then, real quickly, it shows us in Genesis chapter 3 the predicament of the brokenness of our world. And while we were created, the reality is we live in a fallen, broken world because you and I and all the people around us were really fallen and broken. You can read the news have conversations with your family. You can have meetings, whatever it is. And all those experiences, you recognize that the way that things should be versus the way that they are, there's the gap. And so the whole Old Testament points out the way that things are supposed to be and points out the mess that happens for us and that, that we brought in this brokenness and ushered it in our own humanity, right? So now you've got two different pieces. you got the divinity, God, and then humanity, us. And even for those of us who would— uh, Qualify, declare ourselves as Christians. We understand that inside of us. Humanity, divinity, kind of at war here. And so the Old Testament talks about the story of creation and then talks about the brokenness of our world and now if that's the end of the story then we just have more people that can just point out problems right and so the Old Testament is just going to point out more problems you're going going, I got a mother-in-law for that right that's a joke I love my mother-in-law she wouldn't do that yours wouldn't either shame on you for thinking it right if that's the whole story of the Old Testament is just to point out the problems then that's a really really sad story but the Old Testament really really neat all these books 39 books written over you know hundreds of years they all kind of whisper and point to the solution and the solution is one day there will be someone who will make all things right. Where we removed ourselves from the table. We did horrible things that caused horrible pain in our world and in our family and in our lives, right? There would be a savior that was whispered, this Messiah. You see it first in Genesis chapter three, right? That would come and he would redeem us. Or word literally means to be bought back. That somehow that there would be a savior. And God, you know the story. If you've watched any Marvel movie, you have this perfect world, it gets fallen, but you know someone greater than us, someone with supernatural ability could come and beyond our capability, but could come and reconcile and redeem and make things right. And then, and then the hope would be, and the Old Testament whispered about this, declared up from the mountaintops as well, that there would be a Savior. Read any prophet, he's talking about the Savior's gonna come. That'd be Jesus, right? The, this Savior who'd redeem us. And then begin the work with his people of making this what it was supposed to be in the beginning bringing the kingdom of heaven like it was in the garden like it was in creation back to earth right and so Luke would have foundationally understood that there is this story of the Old Testament really going hey here's the problem or here's the reality here's our problem and here's the plan so Luke would have done And so the whole Old Testament had done that. But what's interesting about the Old Testament is what they learned is that there would be a promise, a Savior that would one day come. But until then, what would have to happen is they would, we would need to figure out a way to connect to God, be close to God, uh, apologize to God, repent, make atonement or covering for the brokenness of our world, right? We understand that's Whenever something bad happens, there's, that forgiveness has to happen. And, you know, and so that's just part of how our world works. That's how relationships happen. And so in this, what we, uh, Luke would have known that the whole Old Testament promises a solution, but there was a kind of a fill gap, stop gap before all that got solved. And where all that kind of ended up being was what's called first the tabernacle and the temple. Lots of backstory, but this is important. You'll get it in just a second, right? So the, the tabernacle and the temple, and that was the place where God resided. That was the place, before all this gets solved in the New Testament, where Jesus going, no, 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 now it's me on planet Earth coming to meet with you, to be with you, so that the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that sons and daughters of God can become, I mean, sons and daughters of men can become sons and daughters of God, right? And so Luke knew that, had a plan for that, and was going to declare it, but he needs you to know that let's start in the Old Testament, let's start with the temple, and let's point out the fact that there was always a promise, and God was always at work. And so what we're gonna learn about today, really, really important in these times of uncertainty is more about this doctrine called the doctrine of providence. When I talk about providence, I just want you to see a couple things. I want you to see an eyeball, right? That God sees all things and has from the beginning of time. And I want you to see a hand and God is working in all things. I want you to see a heart and God has deep compassion as he sees all things and working in all things. And here's the reality. In all things at all times, God is always human always bending and shaping things for our good and God's glory. Simultaneously, concurrently, everything he is doing is for our good in our lives and also for his glory. So Luke, trying to explain all this to Theophilus, is going to start back with a story about Elizabeth and Zechariah. And the reason it's going to start there is because what happens in the Old Testament, all these people would declare that eventually there'd be this redeemer, right? And people are going, we need that redeemer. Where's the redeemer? We need the redeemer, right? So that our world can be better, our government can be better, whatever those things are, right? So that it could be restored. And then what happens is these Old Testament prophets would declare, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Hey, turn your face toward God. Believe in this salvation. Believe in the savior. And so these Old Testament prophets would declare that. And what happens at the very end of the Old Testament is there's one more kind of prophet who shows up and gives one more declaration, and it's Malachi. Then after he gives this de- declaration, there's going to be this 400 years of silence. And so when we find Luke writing the story, this is right after the 400 years of silence. So I think in order to understand what Luke's about to show us, with Elizabeth and Zechariah, we got to understand the, kind of the last words given from the Old Testament, where we're still in this fallen world, believing that there's hope for redemption and restoration, but not seeing it yet. So I'm going to do real quick, so I'm going to read to you, just one verse Malachi chapter 3 so you can understand what's at play and what Luke is about to put together for us really really neat you ready for it here's what it says Malachi chapter 3 and it says this behold means pay attention hey pay attention I send my messenger this is Malachi speaking on behalf of God right and he, listen to this, will prepare the way before me. This is quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm pointing out Isaiah chapter 40 where it says prepare the way of the Lord. So behold, I send my messenger. The messenger isn't Jesus. This is one declaring Jesus. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So this is the guy going, you're wondering when the redemption is going to happen. You're wondering if we can be certain. You're wondering if we can find it. We wonder, wonder if it's true. Yeah, yeah. Here's what's going to happen. I want to send the messenger and when you see that messenger you know it's about time i'm going to send that messenger and he's going to declare that he's that we should prepare the way of the lord to make straight paths for him right so he's going behold i will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the lord whom you seek right oh the lord we'd love to know you and be close to you like even if you don't believe all this stuff maybe there really is a creator wouldn't you like to know him like if there really is a God who spoke the world into existence, that kind of helps wrap our mind around all this stuff. Like He is the solution to all that. Would you like to know Him? He says, "And and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to us." Here's the problem: His temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming says the Lord of hosts. So these Jews, Luke would have understood this after researching all the narratives, having all the eyewitness accounts, talking through their oral traditions. These Jews are going, no, one day there's going to be a redeemer. He's going to come. And when he comes, well, we're going to know he's there because first there's going to be a messenger who's going to come blow the trumpet figuratively and declare that he is here, that he has arrived. The king, the redeemer has arrived to restore our world and restore our lives and redeem us and give us a seat back at the table with God. Right, and so, but what they understood that there was going to be a messenger. He was going to show up, and then they're going to go. Now we can be certain of this Messiah, because for hundreds of years, even to this day, people show up all the time and declare themselves as the one who can bring you salvation. Right, and these Jewish people had have, have gotten disappointed over and over and over again and these people who declared that they can make a way where there was no way, when they couldn't make a way where there was no way. So, uh, what what Luke is saying, or what Malachi is saying here, is he's quoting Jesus going, "There will be a Messiah." Now, the problem is that Messiah is going to show up at the temple. So, when Luke is writing this, there's some real concern for the Jews because guess what? For quite some time, for those 400 years, kind of leading up to this moment, the the temple had been in disrepair. So, if you don't know much about the temple, what kind of the story is? It's basically a place where God could reside, right? A, that God had to live in a house, but it was a way by which they could know how to get close to God, couldn't see God, couldn't be with God because of our brokenness and our flaws. But it was a a place where they could at least go, we can be close to God. And so first God gives them in the Old Testament the tabernacle, kind of moves with them, this pillar cloud fire and they could go and be close to God. They could talk to God. There could be priests who would go and uh, the word priest in the Latin pontifex literally means a bridge builder, someone who could build a bridge where you could get close to God, right? And so that was first the tabernacle, and then the temple, God gives David this this great, mighty warrior king, this vision of this temple, this massive temple where people could come and worship, and be with their brothers and sisters, and worship God, and make sacrifices, and plead for atonement, right, with God. And so David gets this vision, and yet David was an adulterer, or a murderer. So God doesn't let David actually build it, so David's son Solomon builds it, and this is big beautiful temple and then um, you know later it gets destroyed and completely you know completely ruined right and then about 660 700 bc there begins the second temple right and so they rebuild the temple and during i think it's king josiah they rebuild this temple again as a place that people could be close to god so the kind of the the exiles in the Jewish faith came back to Jerusalem to be back at the temple, and they build this temple so they can have access again. Then if you read the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is kind of part of the vision of going, hey, we got the temple now, let's build the wall all the way around. So we can have this great place and starts building it. What starts to happen is the temple just falls in massive disrepair. So when Malachi goes, there's going to be a messenger, he's going to come, he's going to come to the temple, they're going, well, uh-oh. Right? This is when you find out, I don't know, maybe your parents have high expectations of what your house looked like, right? Once you're a grown up, right? Or you have a guest coming over and you're like, oh man, our house is a mess, right? You know it. You know when you have guests coming to stay with you for a day, a week, you got the punch list, and all of a sudden you do all the work you're getting done for years. Well, they hear this, that Malachi's going, there's going to be this messenger. They're going, oh no, we got to get this temple built, and it just never, uh, repaired and renovated, and it just never happens, right? And so they're going, how is the messenger going to come? Will the messenger ever come? How does that all happen? So for 400 years, there's a silence. They hear nothing from God. They keep looking for a messenger. The messenger doesn't show up. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus is going to show up. So when Luke is telling the story about Jesus showing up to be the redeemer and the one that comes to restore our world, right, to welcome us back into the family, welcome us back to the table, so that we could be children of God, right? When Luke is telling the story about Jesus, he's going to start in the craziest place. He's going to go, hey, remember— there is going to be a messenger that Malachi said you would not know you would know about Jesus because there'd be a messenger first that would come and point to Jesus and the place he's going to show up is the temple got it so when Luke is about to start this this is where he's going to start Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 5 good job hanging in there that's a lot of backstory and it says this in the days of Herod right in the days of Herod king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of the Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, remember, four verses, prologue, preamble, introduction, and all of a sudden he's going to start with the hook, and I want you to pay attention to this. And boy, what a messy hook this is. So what he's going to point to is first Herod. This is really, really important, because there is, uh, there is Solomon's temple, And then there's the temple of Zerubbabel, or however you say that, which is the one where the the exiles came back and built it, that got in disrepair. And one of the neat and strange things is, during this time, there was this guy named Herod. So when Luke decides to introduce the story, he's going to introduce us to the story of what's going to happen with Jesus. Remember, so that we can have certainty. And he's going to start with the king of the day, right? And this guy's name is Herod. Herod the Great. That's how, how he's referred to. And Herod the Great was a brilliant and evil man and herod the great longed to be seen as great and so one of the things he did because he was put over judea so literally that's jerusalem that's the state this is this big area that he's over that's all jewish hundred thousand jews in the area and so herod is put in charge and kind of referred to himself and was referred to as hear this The king of Judea or the king of the Jews. So you got this guy, Luke's going to introduce him. His name is Herod. Now all the people reading this, Theophilus reading this in the first century go, oh, we know about Herod, right? Now we don't know as much, maybe you do, that Herod uh, decided that his legacy— would be about building massive things that would last long beyond his life, right? And so Herod does, he has massive mansions all over the place. In fact, when and, and but kind of his biggest legacy was he decided he was going to rebuild the temple, right? Because that's kind of the, the fixture of the area in Jerusalem and that's what people were coming to. It was in disrepair. So Herod decides to rebuild this temple. Now there's large taxes that he charges for it. And because in Judaism, the only people welcome in the, the, in the temple were priests. He actually employs a thousand priests over multiple years to rebuild this uh, temple. So it's more of a renovation, but it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a massive renovation. So Herod builds the temple. And, that's, and right next to the temple, he had a huge mansion. That was one of many of his mansions. One of the things that Herod is known for is the um, Mediterranean Sea, uh, part of Judea area, right? Uh, there is a town called Caesarea. And in Caesarea, uh, Herod literally builds a harbor for boats, for safe haven. Out of there wasn't one. He literally built one two thousand years ago, right? Um, he had figured out ways to basically make quick concrete, like like quick dry concrete with some sand. Kind of, I think it was even imported from Italy. All sorts of crazy stuff where he was able to build massive things. In fact, you could Google it even while we're talking. You can pause it and Google it. You can Google um, Herod, H E O H E R O D, and just put swimming pool. Right? Because one of the other things that in his big vacation home in Caesarea, the one with the harbor, it was a Mediterranean Sea salt, right? Um, He had built this basically Olympic sized swimming pool. Let's make sure I get this right. Uh, It's 115 feet long, 59 feet wide, right? Uh, That he built he had built and what's interesting is it was a salt water that was around him but he had tapped into a local freshwater spring and had created a kind of a a, an irrigation canal to fill his pool with fresh water so built this whole thing and you can google it you can look at it and you can see all the stuff that he had built Still 2,000 years later, you could see some of the inlays of tile that he had put together. And so he's known as this massive builder. In fact, um, he even <laughs> built what we believe is the first indoor swimming pool that would have been um, inside like a bathhouse. So builds a, a big pool even indoors as well. And so all sorts of really, really neat stuff happens there. But Herod is um, brilliant and maniacal. So really insecure. Didn't um, he, he didn't want someone to— ha- get his glory. He was always worried about someone kind of overthrowing his regime from inside his family, outside his family, so he murders one of his wives, he murders a couple of his kids, um, and so he's known just to be this really violent guy, and he gets some pushback for it, and so one of the things he does, and this, like even this Olympic swimming pool here and other pools, they, he made them really, really deep. Right? So more than eight feet deep. And he would bring people he didn't like over. Like one time his brother-in-law. And um, they would play something like a like an aggressive, violent game of uh, water polo type thing. Where, I mean, history captures this. Where, where he'd have people drowned. And they're going, why do you keep p- killing people? And he's like, I didn't kill them. They just happened to drown. And so he was an evil person. In fact, when he gets word that... Um, that there might be a Messiah who's been born, that there might be the Redeemer, that Jesus, God who has whispered out in the Old Testament, promised to make a way where there was no way. When he gets word, that's a possibility. And he hears this born as a baby. He literally wipes out infants all over his area, murders all the, all the, 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 the born sons out of his fear in this. So Herod is an evil and brilliant and capable and terrible man. And so Luke is starting the story so that we, be, that we may be certain. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. So he's going, Hey, remember when Herod built the whole temple? There's going to be a reason for the temple. Remember 400 years earlier when Malachi was going, hey, the messenger's going to come. He's going to come and he's not going to be Jesus, but he's going to point to Jesus, but he's going to show up at the temple. So it was pretty important that the temple was ready. Here's what's so crazy. God is going to use this evil, terrible man, Herod, and he's going to be the one to build the temple, right? God sees all things. He works in all things, and he is bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory at all times. So God is even using this terrible, terrible human, to rebuild his temple because he said through Malachi that one day there'd be a messenger. So Luke's going, remember when we heard about that in the Old Testament? Remember when you heard those declarations? Now it is happening. I need you to know exactly how it happened. So he's going to tell you about John the Baptist. But before he tells you about John the Baptist being born, he's going to tell you about his parents, right? And this is what he says. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of the Abijah and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So they have Jewish pedigree. Now, when you see priests here, don't be like really impressed. Like, Wow, there's a priest, so great priest, right? Like, man, that must be so godly. There are actually eighteen thousand priests just in the area, like in Judea. There are a lot, a lot of priests kind of came through this line. And so more than likely that uh, Zechariah was we'll find out was older. Probably it's a priest caring for, you know, ten, twenty people. So this is a, a Mr. Nobody married to his wife who doesn't and she's not known either. These are just random people, and Luke decides to say, Hey, you need to pay attention to these people. Theophilus, you need to pay attention so that you can see that God was always writing a story. And so he's going to say, these two people, during Herod's time, here's his line, and here's who he is, here's his wife, and this is Herod, the one who built the temple, and that's where we find ourselves. So we know that Herod employed priests to build this temple. We don't know if Zechariah would have been one of them or not, but we know that Zechariah was of, was a priest, had priestly duties, probably in a small little village, meaning they were really poor, and that's what we know about them so far. So here's what it says in verse 6, really, really important. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So uh, Luke really wants to make this clear to Theophilus and to us. Hey, these two people, right, during the time of Herod, around the temple, this is where this story's going to take place, right? And during this time, these two people, they were good people they weren't being punished for anything. Like, they were blameless. They loved God. And the reason he's going to point this out is because they're old and can't have a child. And in that day, they, were, they would, have, would have been viewed of them as they must have done something to really make God angry, to take away that because children were the greatest gift, right? So watch what it says next. They're both righteous before God. and verse 7, it says this. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. So... I've um, shared this with you before but really important to understand is in Jewish culture or in that culture just period but definitely in Jewish culture like children were seen as the greatest gift in fact in many ways uh, the value of a woman and her esteem came from her ability to birth children right Um, And so this, Elizabeth would have felt like she had no real identity or no value. And just even beyond just kind of the embarrassment, the ridicule that comes with that, um, there was a very practical reason why people had kids, right? There were no 401ks, there were no retirement homes. And so what happened is you have a large family. As you got older, the family would take care of you, right? Many of you understand that, yes, you're caring for your aging parents now, right? And so that would have been a part of this. And so these guys are getting up in years, that's what it says, advanced in years, and they don't have any children. So that's a concern in terms of how are they going to get taken care of in their old age? Are they literally just going to be abandoned on the side of a street? It's a real possibility. So you that piece. Now on the other side, particularly for the Jews, is they understood that there was this connection that was whispered about to the Messiah, right? That one day there would be a Redeemer. And so part of the worldview— uh, wrong, but part of the worldview is there was this belief that it, uh, because the Savior was going to come through the line of David, as long as you had children, they kept moving forward. If your children's 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 children's, children's children were there, whenever uh, the Messiah showed up, it would work retroactively, and that Messiah would cover all the sins of all people so that all people could be uh, uh, together with God, right? And so they're Uh, part of the worldview is they believe that they would need to have children have children in in order to be able to be connected to God and so when it says they had no child they're godly people but they have no child one is to their identity and the other is to their security both now right in terms of you know uh, retirement plans and then their eternal security for many people this was connected to it so Luke is going hey need you to know this Theophilus here it is time of Herod you got the temple there's going to be this family member Malachi there's a story and so here." Here's this family. They don't have any children. They're good, godly people. God is not punishing them. He has not turned his back on them. It's going to feel like he has, but he hasn't, right? In verse 7, so it says there, Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Now, verse 8. Now, uh, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. So, the way it worked, lots of responsibilities, uh, lots of pastoral care happening. And so, the 18,000 priests basically were divided up into these 24 groups of 750. And so, when it says the, the from the line or the, the division of Abijah, that, that's one of the 24 different groups. And so, what happened is 24 groups that would all, for one week, twice a year. So, that's 48 of them. Then there's some other events where all priests are there. They would would... would come into the city of Jerusalem, right? They would stay in this little Uh, combine that was actually at the temple and they would do all the priestly duties for that week and then they'd go back to their village right and so twice a year that would happen and there's all sorts of duties cleaning caring supporting all those kind of things perhaps even like repairing I don't know all the details but they would have they would have come and done their duties twice a year and so what it tells us here is while he was serving priests before God when his division was on duty so this is one of the two times a year he's advanced in age so we know he's done this numerous times, year after year after year after year. And it says, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So one of the, and probably the most significant job for the non-high priest, that would have been the one in Jerusalem, but these guys would have come in to do these duties. The most significant is they, he would have gotten to go in, not to the Holy of Holies, can't get there, but right on the outside of the veil, he would have been able to come and he would have been able to pray to God. Only time in his life he'd been able to get that close to God in the temple, right? Really important to get this, that Herod rebuilt the temple. There was this place that you could get as close to God as you could. So people would go there to be close to God. People would go there to worship God collectively. People would go there to make sacrifices to God and pray to God and ask God not to forget them. God to go, hey, remember 400 years earlier, you said you'd uh, send a messenger who would then declare there's a savior. They would go and say, God, would you please do that? Would you restore our nation? Would you restore our people? Would you restore those things? And so he would have gone into that place and pray it. And so um, that would happen for one priest, right? And so the way by which they decided who it would be is they would, you know, roll dice, draw lots, that kind of thing. And it says, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Really, really important. So what you got to see here is like, this is This is like the Super Bowl for him. This is the the biggest day of his possible life. Like this is the thing to be able to go, I've been next to that veil. I've been as close as anyone can be to God in this. This is absurdly, absurdly significant. This is one million times greater than being able to go into the White House and walk into the West Wing, right? Absurdly greater than you connected to whoever your favorite celebrity, author, whatever it is. I mean this is the most significant thing that could happen in someone's life. We only get a little bit of it here and it says he would have gone in. He would have taken some frankincense and myrrh. He there had been some coals and he would have burned it. And so kind of the idea behind incense, just so you know, is there would be this like ignition, right? This, that uh, you would burn it, this ignition like, okay, God, we're, we're igniting our hearts and inflaming ourselves towards you like this would have represented some zeal and passion and desire and it would have burned. And the reason that Jews did this, even people still do this, this burn incense is what happens is it would burn. It would show this longing, Right? And then the smoke would just kind of ascend. Like it was, you would see it, like figuratively going back to God, right? And so to be a pretty uh, significant thing. So he would have gone in. He would have prayed for his nation. He would have prayed uh, for the Messiah to come, right? And he probably, I don't know if he's still praying this, but we know he had prayed in the past. you will see that in just a second. I'd asked God to give him a child, Right? And so those would be normal things. In verse 10, it says this, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So this guy would go in, and all the Jews around would be outside in the temple praying. Now, understand, this is hot marble, and they are praying out there, so it is hot. And so the good priests were the ones who were able to get in and out pretty quick. You know, the people who pray the quick prayers before the meal, you like them, not the ones who pray a whole sermon before the meal, right? And so the the priests, and the celebrated priest would be the ones get in, light the thing, pray the prayers, get out. And everybody's like, woohoo, right? And so um, he goes in, all these people are outside waiting. Really important you see this and watch what happens next. And while he goes in, right, so he's praying the prayer, uh, asking for the nation, asking for the Messiah, asking God to provide covering for their sin, asking for redemption, asking for restoration. Verse 11, it says this, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So what happens immediately is, um... He says amen and he kind of looks up and goes oh someone else is there now what I love about this I want to point this out it says uh the angel of the lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense um there's some things to consider there in terms of right versus left I, I don't know if there's anything we know enough about to kind of offer that insight but what I will point out is the, the level of detail that Luke gives us here right he's going hey right side how does he know that again, eyewitness accounts. He's going and meeting. I don't know if he gets to meet with Zechariah. I don't don't know that stuff. I I don't know if he gets to meet with John the Baptist. I don't think so, since he does. But someone who had like an account on this who could say, no, no, when it was the right side, right? So Luke is giving us a level of detail that you don't put in if it's a make-believe story, right? To the right side, and it says this, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. No. Every time angels show up, People get afraid, right? And there's lots to joke about there. don't have time to. But, so there's this moment. He goes and does this thing. He prays a prayer. Goal is to get out pretty quick so all the people in the hot marble can stop sweating and be grateful that their sins were atoned for, that God has heard, all those kind of things from, from them. The priest had interceded on their behalf, all those things. But instead, he looks up. There's this big, massive angel. And he goes, uh-oh, Right? And it says next, and I love this. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Oh, gosh, you are calling me by name. Tell me not to be afraid. But typically, when you tell me not to be afraid, it doesn't help me not be afraid. But well, you are a big, massive angel. Tell me not to be afraid. And yet, you know, I'm afraid. Uh, For your prayer has been heard. Hear this? So your prayer has been heard. Now watch this. It says, For your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son. See that? That means you say, oh, no, 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 we've heard your prayers. God has been in this. God is providential. He's been bending and shaping all things for your good and uh, his glory at all times. And he has heard your prayer and he's answering your prayer. Bear your son, you shall call his name John, right? Really neat. That literally means uh, God is gracious, right? So God is gonna be gracious. He heard your prayer. He's gonna give you a son. His name is gonna be John. So he's heard your prayer. Hey, you've been praying over and over again, day in, day out keep asking. You've kept asking, and here it is in front of you. God's going to give you a son. And, and you, watch it says this, will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Remember that, Malachi 3? Hey, there's going to be this messenger. There's going to be a lot of people excited, because what Malachi prophesied hundreds of years early is fi- earlier is finally going to happen in the temple, right? For he, see this, will be great before the Lord. This is interesting, he's in this Herod's temple right? Uh, Just next to this would be Herod's mansion. Herod would have considered himself the king of the Jews and would have considered himself as great. And what what this angel is telling uh, Zechariah in this moment is, no, no, no. Your son will be great. Not Herod. Not all those things. Not all those buildings. That's not what's great. Your son will be great before the Lord. And it says this, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Uh, this seems to be that he might be a Nazarite. You can read more about those. This is uh, from the same thing that Samson would have been. Samson gets it wrong as someone who leads people on behalf of people. And what I'd probably say here is, you know, uh, John the Baptist is going to have to give up some of his freedom. Right? You can read through scriptures. You can drink. Don't get drunk, but you can drink. And, yeah, and he's saying to Zechariah, hey, your boy can't. I don't know why. My assumption might be that John the Baptist is going to say some really crazy things, right? Some really crazy things about how we get salvation. You don't earn it. You don't have to meet some checklist. He's going to take. It. He's going. To, he's going to basically say all this crazy stuff and the laws and the rules that you're supposed to meet to make God to appease God is not how you find salvation. And a lot of people are going to think he's crazy. And so really nice they can't go no he's just drunk not drunk right this is a guy who's declaring this good news same thing you see in um at pentecost when peter goes we're not drunk we're just having this spirit filled experience so uh, don't be filled with spirits because you're filled with the spirit right that's kind of the thing here and don't want people to get confused about this and so don't let them drink and be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb really do want to point this out don't have a lot of time here um but this is a pro-life argument, guys. Uh, so what, what he's saying to Zechariah is, hey, your boy will be your boy in the womb. I don't know if there's a better argument for personhood. God gives him a name. He gives him a ministry and a purpose. And he says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Right, even uh, later, we'll get to it in a couple weeks, when it says that uh, uh, when Mary greeted Elizabeth, her baby... I jumped in the womb. That word baby is the same language for the word that Jesus talks about, let the children come to me. Remember, Luke's a physician. So when he uses those words interchangeably, baby in the womb versus a five-year-old child, he sees those as the same. And this isn't to, to, to call out or make you feel shame if you've made some decisions as it relates to abortion. We repent, we go, God, there's a better way. Boy, have we all messed it up. But there is this piece, here we go. If we do believe all people are made in the image of God, I don't know that there's a better argument than this right here, that God has given a, a baby in the womb, right, a name, and a ministry and filling it with the spirit already so there is this this isn't i'm not trying to be political my opinion this isn't a political issue it's a moral issue and uh so we see that happen here I just want to point that out not the main point of the story but it's hard to read that and not acknowledge that and want to make sure we do and he will turn many of the children of israel to the lord their god so he's going to turn them back He's going to turn him back to so all these people who had walked away. John the Baptist is going to turn them back. He's going to point to the Messiah, and their face is going to turn, turn towards him. And it says this And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. She's going, like the prophets of the Old Testament, this guy's going to come and he's going to say, prepare the way of the Lord, and he is going to remove all the obstacles. Not so that people will see him as great, even though God sees him as great, but so that people can see Jesus, right? The whole mission of our church is to to go before the Lord and remove the obstacles, remove all the things in the way so that people can just see Jesus. And we will go for in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn, watch this, the hearts of the fathers to the children. So, Oh, I wish, and maybe we'll get to this on overtime, uh, and definitely will on Tuesday during this week, so check back. But I think this is the, the great tragedy of our world right now, is how many fathers' hearts aren't turned t- towards their children. Like um, I think if we look at the brokenness of our world, I think we could see the absence of fathers um, in, in their children's lives. So, John the Baptist is uh, what what's happening here is Luke's going. Not only is he bringing salvation; he is preparing this way where people are getting their hearts turned back to their children. If there's something we should be praying for the restoration of our world is that fathers' hearts would be turned t- towards their children right now. We are a fatherless nation, right? There's fatherless religions, and so this heart is turned back to his children. We'll turn back to our heart of the father. Real fathers are hard to be and turned back to their children, right? And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, right? So the disobedient are going to turn back to God the Father. To make ready for the Lord of people prepared. So this guy's going to come and say, repent, change the way you think. There's a better way to live. And verse 18, it says this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So uh, funny. That, so he goes, I'm old. And that language there literally means, and she's even older. Like, she's really old. Like, super old. Like, I think half her body is, already in the tomb old right so he's going how can this be i don't understand it uh, so he's still in the you know in the in the little area with the altar and it and the incense and it's burning and all these people are still outside sweating waiting for him to come out going what's going on and he starts going well i don't understand could you pull out a whiteboard and help me understand how can this be because I'm old and the angel's like oh you're old I didn't know you're old I don't know I didn't notice by the way you're walking or that hip I didn't understand that right no oh so you're old sorry okay never mind no he goes how can this be for I am old and my wife is even older so he's been praying this forever praying this forever and then finally gets the answer and he goes I don't get it right uh, one of the things that people will tell you scholars will tell you is that Luke is a gospel written to the skeptics And there's lots of reason to be skeptics, but for many of us, um, what's made us a skeptic is experience, right? Pain and sorrow in our life, and pain and sorrow of asking God to intervene, and it hasn't seemed like he's intervened. And so, fairness, I think we're like Zechariah in this. Like, he has this pain. He goes, how can this be because I'm old? Like, where were you 30 years ago? Where were you 50 years ago? So we have a kid now. If you have a kid, I might want to see him grow up. Like, where were you then? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. By the way, there's only two angels named in scripture, Gabriel and Michael. This is a pretty big moment that he's going, I need you to know who I am. And I stand in the presence of God. You see that other side that you can't get to? I've been there. My name is Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and hear me and to bring this good news. This is good news. This is the gospel. That's what the word means. The gospel. This is good news. That there is a redeemer, someone to come and restore. This is good news. Hear me, Zachariah. This is good news. And you're going, I don't get it. I don't understand. No, no. This is good news. And he continues, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. This is God's grace to him. This isn't punishment. I mean, it's discipline where he's going, no, no, no you, this is a big time out. How you think about this? And here's what's really interesting, guys. And I don't know that we've had that experience, but I just want to point this out. This contempt or cynicism that we have towards God or towards the world, a lot of times is the result of our answered prayers, right? Hear me. Many of the things you complain about today are answered prayers from yesterday those kids you wanted to be healthy God give us healthy kids no they're really healthy they're so healthy they have a mouth on them right and boy can they use it this this health that you begged for and pleaded God to come through for you prayed for that job you don't like anymore you prayed for the spouse that irritates you now do you remember that like can you pause and think about all the things you prayed for that God has been so gracious to give you and then you view those things that he's given you with this skepticism or cynicism or even worse contempt do you understand, like, so many things God's given us, like right? Even a, another day to breathe, right? Now we view with entitlement or arrogance or frustration. So many, if not most of the things that we complain about today are things that God did for us in answering our prayers, right? And so you see this happen and, you know, the angel's going to go, hey, God's going to have you be quiet for a while. Some things to process here, right? You've been begging the Lord for this. And then he comes through for you. No, it didn't happen exactly the same way in your timing. But your timing and God's timing not, are, are not always the same. And God's timing, I promise you, is always better than your timing. So you'll be silent. Now we'll see him break into a song in a little while. In the, you know, high school musical, Luke chapter 1 and 2 edition, right? So we'll see that later, but for now he's silent. And watch this, verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Like I told you, they're outside going, what is taking him so long? They're sweaty, they're hot. Zechariah's still in there, he can't speak, and he's just looking there, and I mean, it's all sorts of confusing. Verse 22, it says this, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. So he can't even tell them what happened. He's going, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So Zechariah shows up, right? We saw uh, several weeks back where we saw the first movie screen in the scriptures. It's like, oh, this movie screen, Cornelius. This is the first game of charades in the scriptures, right? And so it's like where I was going, angel, angel. You're like, what? You see an angel in the outfield? Angel, angel, right? No, 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 no. What's going on? Two words, three words. Sounds like movie. Is this a movie? What is it, right? And so he comes out and he starts trying to explain what's going on, but no luck. And when his time of service was ended that week, he went to his home. So, Zechariah goes, and we'll see him make another appearance in a few weeks, but not, not anymore today. Verse 24 says this, and these days, after these days with his wife, his wife Elizabeth conceived, so the story becomes true, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Remember, so Luke's writing the story. There's a reason he wants us to hear it. And he's going, look, let me tell you the story. You want to know the story, Theophilus, of what you can be certain of? Let's start with Malachi so you know that this was always the plan. Now let's start where we start seeing the evidence of the plan. That evidence of the plan or that messenger in the temple is going to be John the Baptist. But the way we start with John the Baptist is we go back and look at his parents. Because his parents were sad and lonely and had no hope right so in many ways as uh, theophilus what has happened for the jews for the last 400 years waiting and waiting and waiting and this contempt rising up in them is the same thing that was happening for uh, elizabeth and zachariah so hey hey theophilus here's some things we can consider hey church here's some things we can consider there's one of two ways that we can deal with that disappointment while we're waiting We can go, God still hears us. He's still going to move and he's going to do what only he can do or we can walk with contempt and judge God and say he must not be loving, he must not be good and he must not care anymore. So I want you to to point out as we wrap up here. it says this, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, watch this, to take away my reproach among people. That word reproach means disappointment but not disappointment your own disappointment it's other people's disappointment with you it's other people's contempt towards you and so she's going man my whole life i've lived with this idea that people have thought i'm not valuable no i know god's good i know he's loving but boy has it been painful to wait and wait and wait and god and to feel like god just doesn't care and he's absent so you see this picture hear me hear me john the baptist will die again This is not the solution to their salvation. John the Baptist does not save them. He points to the Savior, right? So this isn't everything gets better. And that's the problem with the prosperity gospel. The good part of the prosperity gospel is this. We can see God's good gifts and enjoy them. Love, hope, food, all these things that we can enjoy. But they are not an end to our salvation. They point to a greater salvation. So all these good things. Hey, hey, Zechariah. Hey, hey, Elizabeth. What you're seeing here is I'm making all unsad things become untrue i'm making all unsad things go away you in, in my kingdom there is hope and peace and family and love and hearts of fathers are turned to their sons right that's in my kingdom and so what she's saying here is now god with this thing what you've done with giving me this pregnancy you have wiped away the reproach from the people around me no longer can they say it's because i'm broken no longer can say it's because I'm sinful, right? And so in this moment, it's just a picture. It's not. It's not the solution. It's just a picture of what it looks like when you've been waiting on God for a long time to finally come through. Now, think about this. don't you think about it? If you're seventy, I mean, I'm. To be honest, I'm thirty-nine, right? And if I were to find out my wife were pregnant right now, I wouldn't be ecstatic. Right? I look forward to the day they go off to college, have their own life, and I'm still you know, in my 50s and have some good health ahead of me and some time to just enjoy with Julie. Now imagine you're 70. Is this good news to you? Imagine you're 80, is this good news? There's a lot of reasons why Elizabeth can go, well, that stinks, didn't want that. Not interested in that. Right? There's a lot of reasons that can be the case. But in this moment, she goes, here's what it does. Here's what it does. It proves to me that God was not absent. It proves to me that he was always working together a plan. It proves to me that God has always been good, and I can be certain of that. It proves to me that God was working all things out while I was waiting. It proves to me that God has not forgotten you. So I don't know what your barrenness is. I don't know if it's literally, have been asking the Lord to allow you to have a child, and he hasn't. Let's go. Can we can we pray for you in that? Like Just write on the card, send us an email, fill out the connect card. And can we just... Would you let us pray and ask God to do something there? I don't know if your barrenness is about a job or a rough uh, spot in your marriage or barrenness is about what's going on with your kids, barrenness about the chaos of this world or your extended family. I don't don't know what your thing is where you feel like God has just been absent, but what I want you to hear and what I think pretty certain that Luke decides to start with this passage is he wants you to go, God has has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. He is seeing you and he is bending and shaping all things right this second for your good. And his glory, simultaneously, he has not forgotten you. So Luke starts the story going, hey, for 400 years, you may have thought God had forgotten you and it may have turned you to uh, this hard and harder contempt and you see that in Zechariah. Or you can be positioned to go, God is still good and he is still God and he still has a plan. And so, you got Zechariah who comes with all sorts of judgment and you got Elizabeth that basically goes, yes, yes, I will. Okay, I this baby Yes, I will. While I'm waiting, while I'm in the valleys, I am going to trust that He's going to work things out. And so here's what I'd say doesn't resolve everything, not a perfect bow, rainbow, or any of those things in this moment. But He says, Hey, Theophilus, I write these things so that you may be certain. And let me give you a picture of the certainty God was always at work. And so we haven't gotten to certainty yet in our world. Maybe we haven't seen the move of God that we're begging for, but we're gonna keep praying. We're gonna keep going next to him. We're gonna keep going to his feet and asking him to come through. So I just say, if you're tired of asking, ask him again and again and again. Just keep asking him because he is hearing you and he is responding. And there'll be a day that you'll look up and go, yep, those are some hard times, but God did not forget me. So in the valley, in the sorrow, we get to still make this proclamation that we'll trust God. We'll be certain of his goodness. And so what's so great about that is as we finish up this service today, we'll get to sing a song. We'll get to declare that even in the middle of all this stuff, we can still say to God, yes, we will. Yes, we'll trust you. Yes, we'll obey you. Yes, we'll continue to be certain of your goodness. So would you join me as we sing?
1: Yes, I will bless your name.
0: well, good job, guys. Way to hang in there. That's a lot, and there's a lot more we could have, maybe even should have covered, and that's why I would encourage you to tune back in on uh, Tuesday or time this week and check out Overtime, or we'll take another hour to go more in-depth. Got any questions about that? Email us at overtime at church. Ask your questions. We would love to follow up on those things. So keep coming back. Keep uh, joining us in this series. is going to be a lot of fun. I think it'll be worth your time, and you'll get some real certainty about the things that you're taught. And I also do want you to be aware that in two weeks from this weekend, right, um, we will be holding a, a short two, three, five minute business meeting, both in person, in the parking lot, and uh, virtually online, where we're going to invite you to make some nominations towards uh, an elder nominating committee, as we're going to be adding four new elders in a, in a couple of weeks. And so be thinking about folks that you think are full of wisdom and grace and the holy spirit who can help us discern uh the elders that god would like to be leading this church the pastors that god would like to be overseeing what he is doing here and so be thinking about that other than that i'll see you next week online or in person love you guys let us know how we can serve you email us fill out the connect card whatever that is see you soon see you next week bye